If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll turn to the book of Micah, the book of Micah in the sixth chapter, I'm going to start there this morning and I want to read a few passages and then I'm going to somewhat abandon these passages and go somewhere else and then hopefully return to them if the Lord is willing. Micah, the sixth chapter, maybe a portion of these passages I'm about to read might be somewhat familiar to you, um, but hopefully we can tie them in uh, as the sermon goes on here. I want to start reading in Micah, the sixth chapter and start reading in verse one. And it says this, hear ye now what the Lord saith, arise, contend thou before the mountains and let the hills hear thy voice. This is the Lord speaking to the prophet Micah, telling him the things that I want you to say. I want you to say them uh, in such a way with with uh, with authority and with volume. I want this to be heard. And so Micah goes on and he does that. He says, hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. It sounds a little bit like the last uh, couple chapters of Job, if you're familiar with that, that the Lord is calling upon his people because they have been a rebellious people. And he is he's calling on them and he's, he's saying, what have I done to you? What have I ever been to you other than a kind, merciful, guiding light and a powerful God that fought for you? What have I ever done to you? And he says, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He says, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He saith, he hath showed me, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. So that's the first eight chapters of the book of Micah there. And if you will, if you'll turn over to the uh, book of Numbers in the 22nd chapter, and I'm, uh, I'm not going to read all of this, obviously, um, because it's really two or three chapters here that I want to uh, just kind of give you the groundwork of uh, to go back to Micah and hopefully make that make a little sense to us. In the book of Numbers, what you'll read about in the 22nd, 23rd, maybe 24th chapter here is the time when Israel has gone into the promised land and they are beginning to overtake the inhabitants in the cities that were inhabited by wicked people in the promised land. And the Lord is going before them and he's driving out the wicked people from the promised land as he told them he would so that they can come into this land and have a time of rest and a time of peace in a land that was promised to them. Well, as they come into this, I think I mentioned this maybe here a few weeks ago. As they come into the to the promised land, they come up to Jericho, which is a mighty fenced city. And we know what happened to Jericho with the marching around of the walls and with the shouting that those walls came down and they continue this uh, this march into the promised land. And with the Lord's aid, uh, they're just laying waste these uh, massive cities 
uh, that they're coming to. You remember uh, I talked to you about all the kings, uh, the five kings that came together to fight against the Gibeonites, the city of Gibeon, because they had made an allegiance with Israel. And so my point is that Israel is making somewhat of a, of a rumble throughout the promised land, through the land of Canaan. And all these wicked nations that are before them are hearing about this march of the people of God that are coming, and they begin to get very afraid. Uh, it's a very opposite of today, right? What do you hear today? What do you find today? You find uh, God's people uh, tucking their tails and running, right? You find us hiding. You find us being silent. You do not, in today's society, you do not get a picture of God's people marching forward and the world trembling and shaking, right? That's not the picture we've got. But how wonderful would it be to see that happen again in our society? Not in a, not in a sense that these people were coming in and just laying waste, but to have, a, 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 to have the world have a sense of fear and a sense of dread that when God's people stand for something, they have reason to be nervous, right? That would be a wonderful thing to see happen in our society, but we're going backwards, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're afraid to speak up, and, and really, we get more timid and we get more afraid as we hear the, the world marching towards us. Well, pray that that'll flip one day and we can start marching back towards the world, right? But what's happening here is these kings and that are the wicked kings of wicked nations are hearing about the march of the children of Israel coming to them. And one of those kings, and they're all making plans like, how are we, how are we going to fight this march of the God's people that are coming to us? How are we going to do that? Some of the kings join together and this, that, and the other. Well, in Numbers, the 22nd chapter, we're going to read about a king of Moab whose name was Balak. And he had a little different plan to try to fight the uh, children of Israel. So what you find here is that the children of Israel have somewhat camped around uh, the nation or the city of Moab, right? And Balak is getting very nervous. And I'll start reading here just a little bit. And it says in verse 1 in Numbers 22, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. Again, won't it be wonderful, hopefully one day, when the world is distressed because of God's people, not God's people distressed because of the world. And it says, Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us as the ox Licketh up the grass of the field, and Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Now, here's his plan. All right, I can't beat him. We can't go out there one-on-one and, and, and defeat this massive army. So his plan is, he knows a man named Balaam. He knows a man named Balaam that is a prophet of God. Now, he was a strange prophet. He was uh, insane, if you ask me. He was definitely vexed. But Balak knows that Balaam is a prophet of God. And so Balak is going to go to Balaam and ask Balaam or try to pay Balaam to curse the children of Israel so he would have the upper hand and have an advantage when he went into battle with them. So he sent forth messengers unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people... Come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth and they abide over against me. 
Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I woke not, for I woke that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursed is cursed. So he sends all these people to Balaam. With all these uh, all these promises of all these uh, offerings and all this money and all this honor that he will bestow upon Balaam. Well, God tells Balaam that number one, don't go with them. But we, we end up reading on that, that that Balaam ends up going with them. But God tells him, you will say what I tell you to say. Right. So most of you all familiar with the story here that Balaam eventually goes to Balak. And Balaam tells Balak from the beginning, I will only say what God tells me to say. All right. What is Balak trying to find right here? Balak, in a weird, twisted kind of way, is trying to find favor with Balaam's God. Balak is trying to get the power of Balaam's God and use that against Israel. Which it doesn't make sense to us because we're, that's his people, right? But that's what Balak is trying to do. He is trying to find favor with God and use that to his advantage. And so what happens here is, and you read through chapter 22, chapter 23, that Balaam tells Balak, okay, here's what you got to do. Go get some burnt offerings. Go get some bullocks. Go get some rams. And we're going to sacrifice those things. Now, <clears throat> When they, when they do that, they're standing before on a high mountaintop and they're looking at all of Israel out here. Israel's clueless. And here, way up on top of this high peak, Balaam and Balak sacrifice these burnt offerings up to God, who Balak is no more interested in God, as, as Uncle Ball says, than a hog is Sunday. But he's trying to find favor with God so he can use him to destroy his people. And so they offer up these burnt offerings to God and then Balaam steps forth. And I think his full intention was probably to curse Israel because the Bible tells us later that it was God who changed the words in Balaam's mouth. So Balaam stands up probably now pockets full of money and begins to curse Israel. But what we find out is that what came out of his mouth was actually a blessing. And so Balak now is standing here scratching his head thinking, I have bestowed all this honor and all these gifts upon you and we've sacrificed to your God and this is what I paid for. And so he says, let's try again. So they try again. And if I remember right, they try three different times to sacrifice offerings up to the Lord. And Balaam steps forth to curse Israel and blessings come out. And I guess Balak just gets so frustrated, he just ends the whole deal. Now, another sermon for another time is Balak got what he wanted. And he got it through Balaam's counsel. But it was just a deceitful, <laughs> wicked way in which he went to curse Israel. That's right. Okay. But in this instance right here, uh, Balak is trying to find favor with God. He's offering burnt offerings to God to try to get the Lord to curse his people Israel. And it doesn't work. Right. Now, let's flip back over to the book of Micah for a second. 
And let me reread this to you because if you don't understand what happened with Balak and what happened with Balaam, it makes it a little more difficult to understand what's going on in Micah the 6th chapter. So Micah stands up and he's shouting to the mountain so all the people will hear. And he says, Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now pay attention. And then he says, Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted. What did he consult? He tried to curse you. He tried to weaken you and divide you and destroy you. Do you remember that, Israel? And do you remember what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord? He's saying, listen, there was a man standing on a mountain trying to curse you, and you were clueless. But I was not clueless. And I took the very curse out of the mouth of Balaam and I turned it into a blessing and he spit it out. Now, one, one lesson there that we can take from this is I think there's, there's stuff going on on the mountaintops today. And God's people are still in the crosshairs of wicked men. And we're clueless. And I believe God is standing forth changing cursings into blessings for the sake of his people. If you don't thank God for that, thank him for it, because I believe it goes on. And so God says, you don't even realize what Balak was trying to do to you. And if I would have just let all this play out, the Moabites would have destroyed you. But I intervened for you. And he says, don't you remember What Balak said, now verse 6, 7, and 8 are just a, I guess you could say like a little outsert of the conversation that Balak and Balaam had. You won't read about it in Numbers 22, but you read about it here, you get a little more information about what some of their conversation looked like. And this is what it says, uh, don't you remember how Balak king of Moab consulted and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him? And this is the next three verses. This is what Balak consulted. He says, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Don't you remember that Balak was offering to the Lord? I'm going to do these things. The Lord is going to be pleased. And in return, he's going to curse the Israelites. And he says, I've offered, I think it was seven. I've offered seven bullocks, seven rams. He says, what have I got to do? Have I got to come and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will he be pleased with, a, with thousands of rams? Or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's saying, what have I got to do to find God's favor? Now listen. <clears throat> His motives were entirely wicked. Don't misunderstand. But he's saying, what in the world have I got to do to get the favor of Balaam's God so he'll curse these people? So what's the point of these passages here? Here's a man trying to find the favor of God. And he says, what have I got to do? Have I got to give my firstborn? Have I got to, get, have I got to give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Just tell me what I got to do to get these people off my back. And then Balaam answers him, <clears throat> And he basically says, you want to know what you got to do to find favor with God? He said, he has showed me, O oh man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee? It's to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Amen. Now, I absolutely believe that the Lord put those words in Balaam's mouth, too. 
to, to speak prophetically a powerful statement of what the God of heaven requires of his people. And it's a very simple thing, but it's a very difficult thing because of our wicked, uh, wicked heart. He tells us, he says, there's three things that I require of you. One is to do justly. And all that means is to do right. Now, we live in a world here where, uh, as back in the time of Judges, where every man kind of does what is right in his own eyes. Yeah, we have laws. I understand that. But for the most part, God's people have taken God's word and rewritten it in their minds to say what it is that they want it to say. To justify the things that they want to justify and to begin to live in a way that is uh, is pleasing to themselves with a little bit of God sprinkled on it. Right. But you see, God has a standard. If there is a right and there is a wrong, there has to be a standard to tell us what is right and to tell us what is wrong. Now, obviously, there are areas where there's Christian liberty. But listen, things like fornication, there's no Christian liberty in fornication. Do you understand that? There's no Christian liberty in abortion. There's no Christian liberty in adultery. There's no Christian liberty in having, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We have made those things to pacify ourselves Christian liberty. But those things are not Christian liberty, right? Amen. God has a standard for which his people are to walk and that standard is what determines what is right and what is wrong. And he says, what do I require of you? I require you to do right. Amen. I expect my people who I have purchased and who I have bought with a price. I expect them to live and to serve me in a way that is pleasing to me, not themselves, which means they're going to have to die to themselves a lot of times and put their desires away so they can more closely pursue my desires. You know what your desires will get you? In trouble. Your desires will lead you to a, they will rob you of your joy. But the Lord's desires will bring you joy. Even if you give, have to give away everything you've got, the Lord's way is the right way and it works. And he says, listen, well, I can't remember exactly where in the Bible it is. Um, but what does the Lord says? Hey, I planted a vineyard and I expected it to bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Grapes that are not pleasing to me and grapes that are bitter to my taste. We are a vineyard that God has planted and he expects fruit to be there. Amen. What does he require of us? He requires us to live like we've been bought with a price and to live in such a way that honors him. Amen. He also says not only to do justly, but to also to love mercy. Boy, that's a tough one right there. There are things that I love. There are things that you love. Do you love mercy? What is mercy? Mercy is, 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 uh, is overlooking the faults of someone, right? Mercy is not giving somebody a punishment or a chastisement that they deserve, right? We are not a merciful society, right? We, we're, not, we're not even an eye for an eye society. We're more like an eye for a leg society. Small offenses are, are I mean, you pay with your life for some of the smallest of offenses, there, there's so little mercy in our society. And what you see in society, what you see in, 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 in our own wicked hearts is when somebody offends us, we want to make it right. We want to get in there and make sure that they get a payment for what they have done to us. And, and there's just no mercy. It's, it's nothing but justice. 
It's nothing but judgment. That's the society we live in. And if you're not careful, if you let society influence you enough, you'll begin to think that way too. Oh, what's the old saying? Two wrongs don't make a right. Well, we live in a society today where you wronged me and to me to wrong you back is, is proper. It is right. No mercy. Listen, if God wasn't merciful, we wouldn't be sitting here. Amen. If God was not a merciful God and he had not set the example before us, obviously he set the example of doing justly before us because he was without sin, but he was a merciful God. Right. He was a merciful savior. And the Bible says he does not reward us according to our iniquities. If he was an eye for eye God, we would have been obliterated a long time ago. Amen. Are, do you love mercy? Now, listen. I thought of it like this. <clears throat> There's things, you know, things that I like, things that I love. Everybody loves a ribeye, right? You look forward to it, right? You can't wait to sit down and it be in front of you, right? Do you look forward to the times you get to exercise mercy? It says to love it. Do you look forward for the times that you're offended? So you can exercise that mercy? I doubt it. Because I don't either. We should look, we should love distributing mercy so much that when somebody offends us, it puts a smile on our face because we get to exercise mercy. We should love it. But we kind of begrudgingly do it, don't we? Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to punch you in the face, right? Do justly. Love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Justice, mercy, and humility. Listen, if our society could love mercy and walk humbly, 99% of our problems would go away. Amen. The news would go out of business. Right. They wouldn't be able to find conflict in our world mm-hmm. if we could simply love mercy. And walk humbly with our God. What, is to, what does it mean to walk humbly? Humbly. I want you to think about the Syrophoenician woman. Are you all familiar with her? The Syrophoenician woman that, that comes to, to the Lord. And her daughter is vexed with the devil. And the Lord says some very hard things for us to understand. And he basically shuns her and ignores her. And in a sense, he almost calls her a dog. But you know what she says? I am a dog. And the Lord marvels when he hears that come off her lips. You know, that woman was humble. That woman didn't say, I'm fixing to call Fox News and tell them what Jesus said to me. She said, I am a dog. I am low and I am beneath who you are, Lord. And if I can just get a crumb of your power, I'll be satisfied. That's what the Syrophoenician woman said. Humility. Can we condescend to to low estate like the Lord did? Can we see others better than ourselves, Or do we walk around with that attitude of how dare you say that to me? How dare you do that to me? How dare you be that way? I'm going to take mercy and put it in this nice little box and you're not getting any of it. I think the Lord here is using Balak's desire, his evil desire to find favor with the Lord. He's using that to teach us a powerful lesson. That if you want to find favor with the Lord, it's not about all the sacrifices of burnt offerings. It's not about, it's not about 
10,000 rivers of oil. It's not about the firstborn for the transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. You want to find favor with God, do justly, do what is right. And if you let the television tell you what is right, you will fail. Okay? And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it one more time. If you let the television teach you what love is, you will fail. The sitcoms of this world do not know what love is. And don't let them teach you what is love. And don't let them teach you what is right and what is wrong. You let God's word teach you what is right, what is right and what is wrong. Be so excited about the opportunities you have to cover somebody's sins with your mercy that it's like a big old fat ribeye in front of you. And walk humbly with God. And don't think more of ourselves than we should think. And when the offenses come, be like the Syrophoenician woman and you'll find it a lot easier to distribute mercy when you've been walking humbly. I hope that's been profitable to you and please pray for Brother Tim as he comes.